This week's episode of The Weeds is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code WEEDS at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. The following podcast contains explicit language. You know, we try to keep it live-ish. Hello, Happy New Year. Welcome to the first 2016 episode of The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. Uh, with me as usual is my colleague Sarah Cliff. And uh, as a special guest star substituting for Ezra Klein, who I, I believe is in Las Vegas and or the Grand Canyon, we have Dara Lind, uh, another colleague of ours, covers... Uh, Immigration issues, criminal justice issues, lots of good stuff that we're going to talk about. We're so excited she's here. We've been waiting for Ezra to leave for a moment to take her. Yes, so, yes. This is a very eager. exciting moment for the weeds. Ezra I'm never is leaving. usually <laughs> too busy helicoptering around America, courting advertisers to actually know anything about anything. So we need to. We need so if you just wanted to advertise on the weeds, we could take care of that problem. And yeah. Get well, Ezra back. one guy actually just emailed me, which was a, a lot easier than. <laughs> than taking helicopter flights. So, you know, that's always welcome. So, you know, we're going to get into some some stuff uh, later on. There's a, been a, a wacky standoff in Oregon. We've got some, some good, hot, new minimum wage research to talk about. But Dara's uh, first weedsy policy love is immigration, which is a, a really big deal, but I think not something that we have talked about all that much here. And, you know, something that I've been reflecting on watching the presidential campaign unfold is how this is an issue that is really dominated in some ways in, in terms of catchphrases. You know, are you for a path to citizenship? Are you for amnesty? Who was for amnesty? Did Marco Rubio support amnesty? Did he promise not to? You know, there's there's funny acronyms. Uh, there's legal status. There's what do you call the people who are living in the United States but don't have legal permission to do it? And so that's just sort of you know, one place where I would like to start out, I mean, maybe it's like with this amnesty question, like conservative people are very much against it. And progressive people who conservatives would say are for it, like they don't use that word. I think you're absolutely right that it is a catchphrase-dominated debate, and one of the consequences of that is that when a catchphrase works, people start using it to apply to everything else that they also like or don't like, right? So... The question, what is amnesty, is going to depend on who you're asking and especially what they happen to be most angry about at that moment, right? There's a, the old Jewish saying, two Jews, three opinions. You basically have two politicians, three definitions of amnesty. On the weeds, we try to have three Jews. So. <laughs> <laughs> We've kept it up on this episode. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we should have at least five definitions of amnesty in this room alone. So I tend to think that you don't tend to learn a lot about what the policy space is by having individual arguments about does this count as amnesty, does that count as amnesty, because it's going to depend on who you're talking to and what they happen to decide at that time is unacceptable. For In the early years of the Obama administration, when he was deporting 400,000 people a year, you still had, you know, Tom Tancredo and some conservatives saying that he should be impeached for offering amnesty to unauthorized immigrants. It's just, it's a very elastic term. So I think that if you want to understand what the options are broadly for dealing with unauthorized immigrants right. in the country, it's easier to start holistically and then to plot what particular ideas or proposals are on that. So the framework that I've found really helpful for me is thinking about it as kind of a coordinate plane where you have on one hand what you would call like 
pure amnesty. I don't even know what this looks like because it's not something that anyone has ever proposed. But like, imagine a world where Congress passed a law that you could walk into the DMV and say, I would like to be a legal resident of the United States, and they would just process your application. Mm-hmm. Like, we'll consider that one end of the spectrum. On the other end, you have pure mass deportation, which was something that no politician was proposing until Donald Trump decided to actually propose it, which is, if you do not have legal status in the United States, we will find you and we will send you away. And within 18 months, we're going to take millions, you know, 11 to 12 million people out of the country. No one had been proposing that previously, in part because of a it's something that I think I've seen research that when you ask people, it sort of polls pretty well, actually, is to say, well, we should deport everyone who's here illegally. But politicians had not pre-Trump sort of been willing to actually promise that because, well, first, it's a, it's a very large population of people you're talking about, right? So the just the pure financial investment involved in hunting down 11 to 12 million people would be quite large. And then second, I think in practice, it would be incredibly disruptive is is the idea, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that the other thing you would you have to consider there, which is kind of a thread that gets woven through a lot of the conversation about the unauthorized is you have no idea how well it would work or how long it would take. Mm-hmm. But the point about cost is a huge part of this and kind of gets to the other, you know, the y-axis of the coordinate plane that I think about is how much effort or change would it take from the status quo. Mm-hmm. And deporting 11 to 12 million people from the country doesn't actually require a change in the law. They're all deportable. It would require a lot of time through various immigration court due process or getting a lot of people to waive their rights to a hearing in immigration court. But you could do it without changing who is legal in the United States. But it's like but the you difference do require, between... But it does, it does mean like billions upon billions of dollars. Right, but it seems like very ideologically consistent with people beyond Donald Trump, kind of like what Matt was saying, yeah. that if you think that you know people who came here illegally should not be in the country, that kind of seems like the ideological position you end up at. But you don't see as many people like getting there. Is that because of like the cost or the practice of it? Or well, like, I think, I think there's, the there obstacle? are a few things here. And one of the problems that you see reporters in particular struggling with is when you have a politician saying, my answer to illegal immigration is to enforce the law, that could mean they support mass deportation. It could mean they just don't want to legalize anyone. How many people they're deporting is the question there. But like, if you're deporting 400,000 people a year, like Obama was doing at the beginning of his first term or Bush was doing at the end of his administration... In a world that we have now where net inflow into the U.S. is, if not zero, then very close to it, particularly from Mexico, eventually you are getting down to that. So it is it is a very consistent logic of if we are deporting a lot of people, we are eventually going to tackle this entirely. So I think that the aversion of politicians is largely that they don't have to actually promise mass deportation if they're just saying we're going to deport hundreds of thousands of people a year, we're not going to legalize anyone. That should be getting us to the same goal. The other thing is, if you actually promise to deport 11 million people and then you don't actually deport 11 million people, that is a promise that you have made and broken. It's much easier to say, I'm not going to make it easier for people to get legal status in the country. I am going to enforce the laws that we have right now as code for I'm going to step up deportations moderately. Those okay, so are now things we're you can of, actually... We're it, sort of moving down the spectrum, right? Right, right. we're moving so to the left. So there's yeah. like, okay, we're going to go 
get like a huge new group of people. We're going to do a huge increase in deportations. Mm -hmm. That's one view. Then one click down is we're going to try to deter, dissuade new inflow of people, not do any new legalizations, keep deporting a large fraction Mm -hmm. of the the unauthorized population in a given year. And, you know, you can sort of run the math on that. It takes... 10, 20, 30 years, but in theory, you should sort of drain the tub. Right. And we actually do. I mean, the 2007 to 2011, 2012 period is really the closest we've come in American history to that. But that wasn't the stated policy objective. It was not the stated policy objective. But in terms of how it actually looks, it's really the best case scenario because that happened to coincide. And it it didn't start because of the Great Recession. It predated the Great Recession. But it happened to coincide with the Great Recession. So, you know, you had the benefit of a large decrease in the number of people wanting to come to the United States for jobs. At the same time, you had a stepped up enforcement mechanism. So the problem with the, oh, I'm just going to enforce the law, especially when you're talking about it as a deterrent, which politicians often do. They say, if we're deporting people, there will be a message sent that we don't tolerate this and more Mm -hmm. people won't want to come, which is true in some sense. There's a lot of evidence that people, when they make the decision to migrate, understand what the risks are and that they are making an informed decision about that. And that includes they have a certain amount of information about the policy of the country they're going to. But it's not totally in the United States' control to determine whether it's a better idea to live in the United States than it is to stay in people's home country, because obviously they can't control what's going on in the home sure. country. So mm-hmm. the fact that even in the ideal case scenario where you were deporting 400,000 people a year and not a whole lot of people were coming, you didn't have the added deterrent effect of people making the decision to, and this is where the ter- where self-deportation comes in, right? The idea that people, even beyond those who you are actively deporting, are going to make the decision that it's not worth it to live in the U.S. anymore and they're going to move back. The idea is they'll, like, look around, they'll see, like, right. a friend got deported, they'll say, you know what, it's, right. like, safer And everyone, any politician who supports enforcing the law and doesn't explicitly say we're going to deport 11 million people, that's kind of what they're counting on. They assume that if you tighten the screws enough, you'll have a large number of people who will make the decision on their own, which will save the U.S. government a great deal of money. And so the tension in self-deportation comes with there's there's a contrary idea, which is that if we're going to be deporting only a fraction of the people who are here illegally in any given year, we ought to concentrate those resources on sort of the most problematic cases, right? And so like one thing the Obama administration at various different times at least said it wanted to do was not go after people who are quietly living their lives, not getting into any trouble, and to instead focus on new border crossers, people who were getting into trouble with the law, blah, blah, blah. But if you do that successfully versus catching people at random, it has a different sort of psychological impact. Right. right? This is actually the the, this is the big problem with even when the Obama administration was deporting hundreds of thousands of people, it was making a big deal out of we're choosing these people very carefully. In practice, it took them several years to actually do that because what is being said at DHS headquarters and what's being implemented in the field takes a little bit of time. But 
that was deeply offensive and problematic to people who supported more aggressive enforcement of immigration laws exactly for that reason. The notion of a constant threat of deportation is very important if you want to encourage people to leave on their own. And even if Obama and Democrats in general have a tendency to say, well, everyone can agree that we have a limited number of resources. We should be spending them on the worst of the worst. We should be spending them on convicted criminals, on people who have already been ordered deported and who are therefore technically fugitives. And frankly, those who don't think of deportation as just being about, is this person in the U.S. or somewhere else, but is about what message is the U.S. sending to everyone else, really do think that it's important that if you are in the U.S. without legal status, you don't know if you're going to be deported tomorrow. And this is because yeah. there was a difference in policy objective, right? I mean, the Obama administration was emphasizing enforcement, but that was part of a longer-term strategy that may or may not have been wise, but that was, in their view, supposed to produce a bill that would create legal status for a large share of people, whereas real restrictionists want to use deportation as a tool to get rid of everyone. Obama wanted to use deportation as a tool to build political credibility. I think that that is true. I do, however, think that the fundamental mistake the Obama administration made in trying to use enforcement as a way to demonstrate that Democrats could be tough on immigration, too, was really the logic that the administration was using in the first couple of years. You know, we won't propose comprehensive immigration reform just yet. The border is as secure as it's ever been. However, we measure that. There aren't a whole lot of ways we measure that that show it's decreasing. We have the benefit of this recession that's preventing a lot of people from wanting to come in. We're deporting a lot of people. Surely anyone who looks at the facts can say that we're doing a good job of enforcing the laws we have. And therefore, when we ask to change the laws, it's not because we don't respect the laws. It's because we believe that this policy is better. The problem is that you have a philosophical objection, like you've been saying, that some people think the purpose of deportation should be different. But there's also, frankly, a big factual gap. There are a lot of conservatives who care a lot about immigration who do not think that Obama is enforcing immigration laws, who don't think that anyone has been getting deported. And sure. it's still not clear to me how much of that is partisan and how much of it isn't. I don't know that you know, if you asked people about the Bush administration, the Bush administration was obviously pro-comprehensive immigration reform, pro some form of giving people legal status. And that created obvious tensions within the Republican Party. You still didn't necessarily have a lot of people saying, well, Bush isn't enforcing the laws we already have. I want to to understand from your perspective, kind of, you know, what we've seen change and who's coming into the United States, because I know we had this major news story like one or two years ago where you had this wave of um, unaccompanied minors coming into the country. You had a lot of immigration. We were having a hard time dealing with it. Kind of agencies, one of my best friends in D.C. represents unaccompanied minors. And it was just like this impossible thing for everyone to deal with. And then you've been mentioning we've had this real slowdown. Part of it's economic, but now we're having the economy rebound, that we have a lot of indicators that the economy is getting stronger. So, like, how do you think about what's happening in terms of, like, inflow into the country and, like, what happened with this, like, unaccompanied minor crisis that we were all worried about, but now we don't read headlines about? And, like, are you seeing as the economy rebounds more um, entry into the U.S. or what's happening there? 
So it's it's worth pointing out that at the end of 2015, in the, in the later months of 2015, you actually we did see another increase in families in particular. The unaccompanied minors got a lot of press in summer of 2014 because the notion of mm-hmm. children and teenagers making the journey alone is super gripping. But you, you had even more than unaccompanied minors, mothers with children from the Northern Triangle of Central America, that's Guatemala and Honduras and El Salvador, coming in. And that decreased as the unaccompanied minors decreased when the U.S. strongly encouraged Mexico to start interdicting people, interdicting, before they could get to the United States in the fall of 2014, but has picked back up again in the later months of 2015. And it is the Obama administration is currently trying to respond to that by raiding and arresting and planning to deport the people who came in the first wave who still haven't left yet, but who haven't been allowed to stay. So broadly speaking, why people are making the decision to come to the U.S., traditionally, it's been largely economic reasons, right? Traditionally, most unauthorized immigration has come from Mexico. It has been employment-based One of the reasons that you have the unauthorized population explode in the late 90s and early 2000s is that a lot of people who had been seasonally migrating for work, you know, they'd come, they'd make some money, they'd go back to their families in Mexico. Once the U.S. increased border security, it got a lot harder to do that. It was much easier for them to stay in the U.S. and bring their families over. So you have this diversification in the the unauthorized population then. So I just I want to I want to be clear about this because I because I think a lot of people miss it. So it's traditionally you had sort of rotating work-based migration, mostly just of men. Mm -hmm. And then people in America were upset about it. So they increased security on the border. And what happened was is that men would tend to come for work and then stay because going back and forth got really hard. So then they started trying to bring their families over as well because they were staying here semi-permanently. So the whole demographic... of the immigration shifted, as well as the sort of permanence of it. Yeah. And this is it's worth pointing out that this isn't just a theory based on, oh, we had this rapid increase in the number of unauthorized immigrants. What happened there? There are demographers who have actually done work surveying in both the U.S. and Mexico and the Mexican population in particular. You can see these very clear demographic shifts after around 1996 of, oh, all of a sudden this looks like the kind of population that is going to settle in the U.S. And that's exactly what happened. Most immigrants who are most unauthorized immigrants who are currently in the U.S. have been here for a decade or more. The calculus of that's going to change, obviously, with what the economic situation is. And certainly the Great Recession took a big hit out of that. Mexico's economy has been improving over that period and has continued to improve to the extent that it's not, it is no longer an obvious improvement to risk going to the United States, especially because border security is also an important factor here. And as much effort as the Obama administration has now in its second term put into protecting the people who have been here for 10 years and not disrupting the lives of people who have really made lives in the United States, they've kept and really even increased an emphasis on if you are caught crossing the border, you will be sent to prison. The most, I don't know if this was true in 2015, but certainly in 2014, the most common criminal charge in federal courts was illegal reentry into the United States. Um, you will be sent to prison, and then once your prison term is complete, you will be deported. So the risk increases, the reward is, eh, it's not as strong as it used to be. So that 
has really changed the face of unauthorized influx into the U.S. Is that true for Central America, too? Right. So Central America is a totally different situation. And as of 2014, Mexico is no longer the majority sender of unauthorized immigrants to the U.S. Central America has just really surged in how many people it's sending. Mexico has sent fewer. Part of that is... Some is economic. A lot is instability-based. Honduras and El Salvador are two of the top five countries in the U.S. when it com- or in the world when it comes to homicide rates. They are both very violent places to be, and part of it is that when you have situations like that where a lot of people want to get out of somewhere, and we see this in Syria, we see it in you know some of the. African countries that have been that have had real migration outflows. When you have people who are really desperate, that's a great opportunity for smugglers. And even if someone is has a good humanitarian case of like, oh, I'm being targeted by a gang or I'm a victim of domestic violence. If I stay here, I'll be killed. If I manage to get to the U.S., I could get asylum. That doesn't automatically get to get them to the U.S. And smugglers don't particularly care about the distinction between could you come here, you know, could you get legal status or not. So there's been a really strong incentive for smugglers to shift their efforts from Mexico over the last several years to Central America, where there are lots of desperate people who are willing to pay them money and where they're not super responsible for what happens on the other end. So that the building of that infrastructure, which is really what the U.S. was trying to disrupt when it's telling Mexico to go, you know, catch people, is to keep smugglers from thinking that this is going to be a good market for them to operate in anymore. And what it what appears to have happened is that smugglers haven't found a new Central America. Instead, they've just kind of waited until things have calmed down and started picking up the old one again. But the Central American migrants, right, we are seeing more children and we're seeing more mm-hmm. families. And so... The the inference, at least from that, is that it is obviously economic conditions probably always play some role in what people are doing, but it's less about people trying to come get jobs. And conversely, it does – I mean uh, this is – I know I've I've spoken to people who work in um, home building and and building trades Mm -hmm. and a a concern that people have in in that industry is that as the economy recovers, the the housing sector has been a real laggard in this economic cycle. But they are anticipating that demand for building of new homes is going to start coming online. Rents have been going up faster than inflation. House prices have recovered close to bubble levels faster than most people anticipated. And there's a there's a lot of concern that the the labor force that was relied on in the mid-aughts and in the late 90s to do uh, small-scale construction projects has gone away because of successful sort of enforcement efforts. And this sort of semi this at least it's a refugee demographic whether or not they have a a legal status of refugees is not necessarily capable of of filling that kind of need right so i think that this is going to be as the housing sector in particular comes back online it's going to be an interesting test because it's not totally clear how much of the flattening out of the unauthorized population in the like in the late 2000s was because of the Great Recession versus because of enforcement. And obviously people who think that enforcement is a very important deterrent are going to say, great, that was enforcement. People who suspect that enforcement doesn't work at all are going to say it's the, you know, it's the economy. 
because the housing sector has been slow, we haven't actually seen whether the recovery is going to, ipso facto, increase the number of people who want to come to the U.S. So it's going to be, at least academically, an interesting lesson in how much enforcement really does deter future entries. The other thing I'd say, though, is the Central American population is largely a, as you say, it's a refugee demographic, although if you think about it, if you have people who are in their mid-teens who are coming, they are not currently in the workforce, but they're going to be in the workforce in a few years. But people say, you know, about half of the unauthorized population are visa overstays. And while there isn't great data on how many people overstay their visas from year to year, that's what the easiest way to get into the U.S. unauthorized if you're not coming from Mexico or Central America. So there's been a little bit of diversification. So that means you because, come to the U.S. legally right? with right. a visa. Maybe like it's a student visa. Maybe it's yeah, a, usually a tourist visa. A tourist visa. Gather, yeah. And then... It's good for three months and it doesn't give you permission to work, right. but you just don't leave and you do get a job. And does the U.S. usually go after those folks or are they like, how do they get, you just kind of hang out from Canada or something? The U.S. doesn't make a particular effort to go after visa overstays. So that kind of gets rolled into the question of how much effort is the U.S. going after to deport somebody who's here illegally. Right. And I think but- when you think of like people who are arguing you know, against illegal immigration, like a lot of them aren't thinking about visa overstays. I don't think they're like often – I don't know how much we're thinking about you know, the tourists from Canada – well, certainly, exactly. like, when, when Donald Trump does his ad, right, right. There's, a, there's a video. I mean, it's a fake video, but it's, but it's a video of people storming at a wall, right, like, like right. a big mess. It's not them, like, getting off an airplane. Well, or even and, worse, like, it's not someone just sitting in the coffee shop <laughs> not leaving. The interesting thing is that as little political purchase as it gets you to talk about visa overstays <laughs> and an electronic entry exit system, that's actually been a way that Republican politicians have demonstrated that they understand the issue and are serious about it. The easiest way to say, I'm not one of these yahoos who's just trying to whip up people's you know, anger, mm-hmm. I actually have a solution to the problem, is to say, I understand that half of these people are here because they've overstayed their visas. And I think that this law that Congress passed that theoretically requires DHS to set up an electronic way to monitor, oh, this person overstayed their visa, we should go get them now, is the way to do it. The reason that DHS hasn't done that yet is because it's a massive technological system that doesn't It tells you when people have overstayed their visas. It doesn't tell you where they are. It seems like a very serious technological solution to the problem. So you've heard, you'll hear a lot of, you know, the Marco Rubios of the world talking about this sort of thing. But is there even like, you know, I'm trying to think of how you implement a system like that. And aside from some kind of tracking, I mean, like, it seems like such a massive lift. Yeah, but you know what? I I do think, I mean, on the one hand, I I love immigration. I don't care if people (laughs) overstay their visas. On the other hand, as as a liberal... I, I would kind of like to see the government, you know, be able to, like, function and do things. And it's kind of hilarious if you think about ever traveling anywhere, right, or when people travel to the U.S., you show up. There's these, like, long-ass lines at the airport. You have all kinds of pieces of paper. They're reading all this stuff. You're supposed to be writing down addresses, like, where are you staying? What are you doing here? They're stamping all kinds of things. And then it's just in reality that's all goes in the garbage can. Once you get out of the airport. And it does seem like, look, you're not going to put chips in everybody's head and (laughs) track them down precisely. But you could, in theory, you know, if you look at, like, the kind of uh, 
tracking of you and like gross invasions of privacy that like every advertising company and like internet company in the universe is able to pull off. It does seem like there should be some way for the government to have some kind of notion. Oh yeah, this guy came in, they told us they were here on a visit, they were staying at this hotel. And like do you know the visa overstay people, like what are they up to? Like are they working? Are they hanging out in a coffee shop? What do we know about this, like, population of people that, like, a lot of people probably don't think of as the migrant population? So there's a bunch here, and I also am waiting to hear from tech executives that (laughs) DHS Secretary Jay Johnson has come to them and say, can we talk about a backdoor for migration? Because I feel like Matt has just proposed this very elegant, you know, technological-seeming solution. Yeah, you're signing on to your Facebook, right? From what I've heard, actually, from experts on this, just to, to clear this up, the system that we have of writing everything down at airports is about as good as doing it all electronically would be. This is, you know, when someone like Jeb Bush proposes electronic entry exit, they're like, we have that. It's just not electronic. The question is what we do with it. Uh, but- someday we have to talk about the electronic medical records. Oh, yeah. That's <laughs> a big boondoggle. I like that boondoggle. Right. Anyway. When, when Ezra's back. Yes, yeah, yeah. another So day. as far as, you know, what you're asking, Sarah, about what we know about the visa overstay population – there are lots of great epistemological questions about what we know about the unauthorized population generally. And that's why you'll often hear people saying, well, we say 11 to 12 million illegal immigrants, but really it could be 20 and no one would have any idea. Yeah, technically we couldn't. There's a thing called demography that allows us to make decent estimates. But demography doesn't tell us a whole lot about how people came here. We know that there's a substantial portion of people who have overstayed. We can extrapolate from that as to, okay, we know that there are several hundred thousand unauthorized Indian immigrants in the United States. We assume that they are visa overstays because it's a lot easier for them to come via visa overstay than it is for them to cross the border. We don't actually have that information terribly well tracked. So it's reasonable to assume, and people tend to, that the reasons that people are going to stay in the country illegally after overstaying a visa are going to be similar to the reasons they come across the border illegally to begin with, right? Mostly for work, partly for family, often from some combination of what migration experts call push and pull factors, right? Where pull factors are reasons to come to a particular country and push factors are reasons to leave where you are. So there's going to be some combination of those two. And because the U.S. has a thriving economy, prospects of getting a job here are probably going to be a strong reason. But if there are substantial differences other than simply where they're coming from between the people who are overstaying visas and the people who are coming, you know, crossing the border, that's just not information that is going to be out there. Something I, I think it's, it's worth saying about this is that the the unauthorized nature of so much of the immigration to the United States gives it a particular economic skew. If you were talking about a population of people that was all coming legally, but the supply of people, you know, could just sort of expand, right? You would see people coming in, a lot of people coming in at at the highest wage occupations, right? The United States has the highest paid doctors in the world by far. So you might see lots of doctors coming here. But you can't do brain surgery without a proper visa. You're not going to get hired as like the CFO at, at Visa. You know, right. We, like there's we, a reason we have a Canadian reporter, Julia, and there's a reason we went through the whole immigration process. Right. Like, so we could hire her. She so, could be a great reporter for us. So it's like the only – there's only a certain set of jobs that you could get on a sort of under the table or, or off the books 
basis in the United States. And so, you know, you can you can maybe get a job waiting tables. There's lots of jobs in building trades where there's just tons and tons of, of instability in it. Um, a lot of people work in, in the domestic sector uh, where, you know, God only knows what's happening. But, you know, so it, it winds up giving the immigrant population in the United States a, a lower skill level and a, and a lower wage profile than you have in countries that have larger legal populations. So I think that there are a couple of kind of caveats that I want to throw out at that. And one is that there's a concept that people who work with immigrant populations talk about a lot called skills mismatch. It tends to come up more in the context of people who are here on, you know, asylum Mm -hmm. or who came here to live with family or that kind of thing, less often with people who are actually unauthorized. But it is definitely true that there is a substantial population of immigrants out there who are trained who were trained in their home countries in higher skill and higher wage jobs than they're working right now. Part of that is maybe they don't have the language skills. Maybe they just haven't been able to find an employer who is willing to take a chance on them because their credentials come from a school in a country. Well, or, they don't or you understand. don't have the license, right? So, right. I, so, so, sure. so you you meet people if you're your parent, you know, uh, immigrants working as nannies, and they often have background as teachers yeah. in the country that they're from. Uh, but you can't you you can't get a job in an American public school on the basis of, oh, I taught school for five years in Jamaica. Um, You need a license Mm -hmm. to teach in the United States. There are education schools in the United States. There's there's medical credentialing processes, legal credentialing processes, and it's it's meant to protect them. And so, you know, you can you can come in with a skill profile or experience, but you, legally speaking, can't get a lot of jobs in the United States unless you've been through U.S. based training right. and certification. And programs. while you know, again, there are fewer of those. The unauthorized population is lower skilled than the legal immigrant population in general, but you certainly have that problem for anyone who is here unauthorized and has been working in a higher skilled occupation. And that's compounded by if you can't work in the U.S. legally, the only sectors you can get a job in are sectors that are used to hiring unauthorized labor. And those are going to be very low wage sectors. So I wouldn't say it's fully a self-fulfilling prophecy, but there's definitely a dynamic where because the U.S. kind of expects that you're going to have unauthorized immigrants working largely low-wage jobs. If you're unauthorized, regardless of what you're qualified for, the job you're going to get is a low-wage low-wage job. I think it's this is also where we start to get into the gap between what people think of when they think of unauthorized immigrants and what the population actually looks like. The fact that illegal immigration from Mexico has basically collapsed or at least flattened over the last several years is something that a lot of policy wonks know and nobody in America knows. And if you ask people how many unauthorized immigrants there are in the U.S., they'll give you the number of immigrants or the number of Latinos in the U.S. If you, you know, There's an assumption that immigrant equals Latino and immigrant equals illegal in the minds of a lot of Americans that makes it very hard to distinguish what effect the population is actually having from what do people think is going on in their communities. So, you know, you do have again, kind of by default, more ethnic diversity in the unauthorized population and more skills diversity in the unauthorized population that just isn't getting noticed because people assume that if you're trained as a doctor, then you must be here legally. Right. Okay. So I, w- I want to do one one last beat on this but before we move on, which is that the, the Obama administration obviously made some important 
kinds of moves here. Um, and not to uh, drag you into endless debates over what, what is and isn't amnesty, but it is certainly a thing that people who would like to see less immigration and more deportation characterized that way, right? Um, His sort of big legislative comprehensive reform dreams collapsed. And so he he issued some – I don't know if they were executive orders per se or just like memos to the enforcement agencies, uh, but but changing things up. Right. So we were talking a little bit ago about how in Obama's first term he was doing this large but targeted enforcement thing where he was deporting a lot of people, but he was saying these are very particular populations of people we don't want to be deporting, people who have lived here for decades, who have raised families here. We certainly don't want to be deporting children or you know, young adults who came here as children who have lived their whole lives in the U.S. But the way he was doing that was just issuing memos saying if you are an ICE field agent and you encounter these people, consider them low priorities. If you encounter these other groups of people, consider them high priorities. And Sometimes that was working. Often it was not. It certainly didn't raise the threat of deportation from anyone. And it didn't allow anyone who was theoretically not a priority to work in the U.S. legally. So even if there was a memo saying that you shouldn't be a priority, how much good that actually did for individual immigrants was kind of unclear. So in the second term, or starting with summer of 2012, when he does this for people who would have benefited from the DREAM Act after the DREAM Act failed in Congress in 2010, and then again in November 2014, although the November 2014 stuff is what's currently being held up in court, so it hasn't been implemented yet, he does this thing called deferred action, which is an established way for the executive branch to say, this group of people is temporarily being given a written promise saying we won't deport you for a couple of years. That's been used in the past with, you know, targeted groups. It'll be used with unauthorized immigrants from one country that is in a particularly screwed up position. So we want to make sure that they don't get deported. It got used in the early 1990s by President H.W. Bush because they had realized after the Reagan amnesty happened that a lot of family members of people who were covered by the Reagan amnesty weren't covered. So in order to not force the family to split up, there was temporary protection and then Congress came in and allowed them to – allowed the whole family to get legal And was status. used initially with uh, people fleeing Cuba after the, the revolution there, right? That there, were, there was later a legislative – thing, right? There's like a special process for, for people leaving Cuba. Oh, yeah. But, but initially, people just started showing up in Florida. And because it was a sort of a foreign policy priority, there was like executive guidance, like, okay, they can come. We're going right. to try to... This know. actually relates to our minimum wage conversation later. Oh, it all are we comes to Mariel Boatlift? Indeed, we are. So anyway, so Obama <laughs> does this for a population of about a million people in theory. But of course, because people actually have to apply for it, it's fewer than that. So far, you have about 700,000, a little more than that at this point, people who have actually gotten deferred action under the 2012 actions. And the other thing that Obama does as part of that is say, once you've gotten your written protection from deportation, you can turn around and apply for a work permit for, for that period of time, which is typically something that comes along with deferred action, but when you're doing it for 700,000 people at once is a big deal. And so a work permit means that people can hire you yes. legally. It's like amnesty for employers as well, right? It's it's not mm-hmm. just, okay, well, you are safe from being deported right. for this year or this six months or, or whatever, but it means that you are now eligible for a much wider range of 
legitimate labor market opportunities, which should mean that your life in a sort of practical day-to-day sense may improve a lot. I mean, it might not, depending on your circumstances, but you might be able to get a much more stable job this way. That right? is and and there's definitely, you know, there have been surveys of people who have gotten deferred action under this program that many of them are in career track jobs now. They're better able to provide for their families because their families are still mostly unauthorized. The question of course that you might be asking is why is this different from just giving someone legal status? And there is a technical legal answer that legal presence is different from legal status, which is just know that those two terms are different. That really doesn't have that much importance beyond that. But there's the practical answer is it's temporary and it can be revoked at any time. Mm-hmm. In the U.S., if you are a legal permanent resident, you can get that stripped from you if you're convicted of serious crimes. That's basically the only way that that can get stripped from you. Legal statuses that Congress has written into various immigration laws are permanent unless you violate them in a way that's written out in advance. Deferred action, the line has always been a President Cruz or President Trump comes into office or, you know, when he initially did it, a President Romney comes into office and says, we're not honoring this anymore. And it's done. It's Mm -hmm. gone. And furthermore, if you are a president who is very keen on deporting a lot of people at once, you have a list of 700,000 people. So that's kind of the useful distinction there. There's an argument that because you're protecting people from deportation and giving them work permits, that that is amnesty in a way that just saying verbally, we're going to try not to deport you and we'll deport these other people instead isn't. There's also the counter argument that an amnesty in the way that people describe it in, you know, in 1986, or even if you're calling the comprehensive immigration reform bill that Congress tried to pass in 2013 amnesty, those are ways that people who have been unauthorized immigrants cannot be unauthorized anymore. And once that shifts, they can stay in the U.S. Right. more or less indefinitely. Well, in most contexts, right? So when, when they do, when state governments do like a tax amnesty, right. where it's like if you actually show up, admit you were wrong, pay your back taxes, pay a fine, right. the, the meaning of the amnesty there is that like now you're good. Yes. Right? right. Like it's done. Exactly. They don't they don't get to come back next time and be like, oh, you know, you owe us a little bit right. more. So that's when I've talked about Obama's executive actions in 2012 and 2014, I've used the, the term protection from deportation because that's what it is. And that is just like deportation is almost purely a matter of what the executive branch decides it wants to do at the time. Deferred action is purely a matter of does the executive branch honor this thing or doesn't it? So you could hypothetically have a kind of phasing out of something like this where it has to be renewed every two or three years. Okay, we're going to stop renewing them. But in practice, it's really who's in office as president and do they feel like continuing this program or not. So if it lasts indefinitely in a world in which Hillary Clinton is elected and serves two terms and then blah, 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 sure, at that point, it's functionally indistinguishable from an amnesty or from giving someone legal status. But in a world where immigration is a an issue that no longer divides Democrats and Republicans internally as it did eight Mm -hmm. years ago, but where all Democrats are being pressured to support maximal protections for unauthorized immigrants and all Republicans are being pressured to support, if not active deportation, then certainly stripping the protections that exist, that gets very fraught in terms of individual immigrants making future decisions about, do I want to sign up for this? Do I want to go into a school 
program that if I lose my legal status two years in, I'll have spent a lot of money and not gotten any benefit, et cetera. Right. right. Okay. Thank you very much for that. I think we should take a quick break, sure. uh, make some make some money, and then uh, come come back and, and discuss other matters. This week, uh, I'm really glad to have Squarespace back as a, as a sponsor again. Uh, Squarespace is basically the best place to go build a website. Uh, it has really sort of easy, user-friendly tools. You don't need to be an expert computer programmer. You don't need to be an expert designer. You can use it, and you will get a site that looks like a professionally designed website because their templates are done by professional designers. They've got a lot of them. Uh, you know, and if you look around the web, it used to be that you really sort of had to choose between paying a lot of money to get a professionally done site or making a site yourself that was hard to build and looked terrible. And Squarespace is just the, the solution to that. You get a sort of a modern responsive design, so it looks great on mobile phones. You get uh, a free domain if you sign up for a whole year. Uh, so, you know, I mean, if you have any interest at all in having a website for yourself or for your business, there's a great opportunity to start a free trial today and, you know, see, I bet you will like it if you do it. Uh, when you do decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use offer code WEEDS to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, build it beautiful. All right. Uh, so the the big thing that's that's happening this week. I mean, there's actually a, a bunch of stuff happening, but but something that North Korea's exploding thing. Yeah, I just don't know anything about. It's a big that. news so, week. So we we kicked off the new year with some uh, <clears throat> armed men, some of them uh, affiliates of uh, Cliven Bundy from the last great Western lands controversy, uh, storming into a federal facility. It's like a, a welcome center. I, I don't know. It's the building associated with a federal wildlife refuge in a small town in eastern Oregon. And then they said that they are not going to leave until there is a, a change in a, a legal ruling against some uh, some fellows out there who um, burned, they set fire to part of uh, a national forest uh, out, in, out in Oregon and threatened to shoot any cops who came in and, and tried to get them. And, you know, it's a interesting story that I think under any circumstances would have attracted some level of, of national attention. It's it's not every day that uh, armed men seize control of uh, government facilities. But, you know, it, there was an immediate social media outcry that I was certainly part of, uh, noting, you know, there's like a certain contrast between uh, earlier that week, uh, it was ruled that a Cleveland police officer who heard there was a kid with a gun that might have been a toy gun. They rolled up. They saw a kid holding what turns out to have been a toy gun, kind of hopped out of the car, shot him, and then no indictment, no harm, no foul. Uh, he was in fear of his life. And, you know, we've obviously had a, a lot of stories, a lot of discussion of, of Black Lives Matter, a lot of... Um, pushback from conservatives about a war on cops, things like that. Then you see some white guys with uh, with little flags and, and camo hats and a uh, patriot ideology brandishing weapons and threatening to kill law enforcement officials. And, you know, the response is to be like super cautious about it. You know, it's like, whoa, we're not going to say it's okay for you to seize this building. But the most important thing is to like handle the situation delicately, you know, try to make sure people people don't get hurt. And, you know, I think the, the first thing that came to mind for me certainly was that there's a, a racial double standard here. And, and more broadly, I would say a kind of a political and ideological double standard. Like it's somehow sort of okay to be an armed anti-government militant as long as you are approaching it from a, a right-wing and nominally constitutionalist perspective in a way that it's like not okay to be like a 
you know, street gang or, or something like that, that you get to call yourself a militia and, you know, everyone everyone kind of kind of respects it. Right. I mean, the contrast is definitely like, you know, I saw this on social media and you can like easily like make this contrast, like you were saying. And, you know, it's so on the one hand, I totally see that. Uh, on the other side, I also get the theory of the government is operating under here, where for them, you know, they want fewer casualties. They're worried about like a situation where they store. And, and, you know, I would almost say, you know, bring that same worry to other situations like, you know, less casualties across the board would be like probably a great thing for America for less gun casualties in 2016. But, you know, when you look at, um, you know, I, I was watching an excellent Vox.com video on this. And like one of the great points Joe Posner, who made that video, made was like when you look at how the government used to handle standoffs, there'd be a lot of shootings like, you know, there's t- and you, you'd see violent reactions to that, like Timothy McVeigh saying that one of the reasons you know, he did the bombing in Oklahoma was because of how the police have react- reacted um, so aggressively to other standoff situations that he was in. Feels odd to say, like, let's not piss off these people with guns. You know, we want to treat them nicely as they're occupying these federal buildings. But at the same time, there is an inherent risk to kind of going out guns blazing and kind of, you know, really riling up the people who are pursuing these kind of actions. So, you know, I can see I see the contrast, but there's also like a, a relatively sound federal logic to like not going in guns blazing, lighting these people up. And just like hoping and, you know, in previous examples shows it's possible that at some point these guys, you know, while they've said they're ready to stay there indefinitely, like the reporting I've seen doesn't really seem like they have a sound infrastructure from what I understand in terms of their food supplies. They have 20 odd cans of chicken soup and a bag of pretzels and, you know, some other things here and there. They don't actually seem ready for, you know, a long, a a long hold and don't have this like massive groundswell of support. So you can see on that side, like, you know, why not just wait them out for them to come out of there. Right. right. So I th- as someone who was not super politically aware because I was too young in the kind of early 90s when the standoffs that you're mm-hmm. talking about, Sarah, were happening. So oh, this is that, all from things I've read. The, I was so, like five right, years no, old. I just, but this was my first reaction initially was, gee, this sounds a lot less like the killing of Tamir Rice than mm-hmm. it does like Waco and Ruby Ridge. So I, I've spent the first part of this week schooling myself on the things that I wouldn't have paid attention to at the time. And the narrative that actually comes out of that that I think people who lived through it haven't necessarily processed is the standoffs in the early 90s weren't immediately politically controversial. They were controversial to Timothy McVeigh and the movement that he was a part of. But most Americans were like, you know what? Those are right-wing crazies. They're shooting at cops. Whatever you want to do, that's totally okay. So, wait, what? so Waco yeah. was a cult, Yes. Right. They were called Branch Davidians and they were living in a compound near Waco, Texas, which is a, a small towny kind of place. But it's also not the middle of nowhere. But they had a, a compound sort of off yeah. in the outskirts. And there were allegations of child abuse. Is that what it was? The initial the standoff started when an ATF task force raided the compound because they had illegal guns and illegal explosives. Okay. But there was a lot of oh, these people are doing bad things. There there were allegations of, of child abuse, if you can call them allegations, if there's evidence that the cult leader had a bunch of child brides. Okay. As the siege went on, the FBI became 
you know, started telling Attorney General Janet Reno, you know, we think that children are still being abused in there, knowing that Janet Reno had said it is a priority of the Department of Justice to fight child abuse, Janet Reno ultimately, after about six weeks, gives the decision to start to take a more aggressive stance and not wait them out. And then after the fact, it comes out that the FBI director knew perfectly well that there wasn't the evidence of ongoing child abuse. And it's not super clear who at the FBI told Reno that. There there are a lot of things like that where it's not that these people weren't crazy because they obviously were. <laughs> Getting from this cult of people stocking up for the for the apocalypse in a compound in Waco, Texas, to the way that the standoff ended with the federal government pumping in a bunch of tear gas and cult members responding by setting fires that set the entire compound on fire and killed 80 people. Those two didn't have to be connected. Right. And there were a mm -hmm. lot of legitimate mistakes made by the federal government. Right. Which and kind of was... gets us to, like, the more conservative attitude that they're displaying in Oregon. Right. right absolutely. Now. Absolutely. But... At the time, right after the Waco standoff ended, 75% of Americans thought the federal government had done the right thing. And that mm -hmm. lasted for two years. And, you know, similarly, when, when people talk about Ruby Ridge, they're talking about a much more straightforward and not involving a cult, but a couple-week-long standoff with a guy and his family that ended when the guy surrendered. But before that, his wife and son had been killed by federal agents, one of them in a firefight, one of them by a sniper who was just told to shoot on sight. So that was another case of people who were in right-wing circles thought of that as a terrible, terrible thing. People who weren't in right-wing circles were like they had it coming to them. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, when Timothy McVeigh blows up the federal building in 1995 and deliberately blows it up on the day that the Waco compound set on fire, the two-year anniversary of that, doesn't give any other public statements about this is what was going on here, leaves it to the media to figure it out, suddenly the media is talking about, oh, there are lots of people who have issues with the way the federal government behaved in Waco. And that kind of gets re-litigated in a way it never was. And suddenly, in April 1995, you have still three out of four people think the federal government acted properly in Waco. Three months later, that's fallen to a 50-50 split. 25% of Americans changed their mind. Not after it happened, but after an actual honest-to-goodness domestic terrorist said, this is my grievance as a domestic terrorist. And this is kind of where the two come together. The FBI has, and the federal government generally have clearly learned that if you take aggressive actions, they could come back to bite you later. And it was a massive crisis of public trust for the FBI, and they had to have a bunch of hearings and change a bunch of stuff. But the reason that that became a crisis of public trust was because the American public decided to consider, gee, is the grievance of this domestic terrorist legitimate, which is something that it's very hard to imagine <laughs> happening with the San Bernardino shooters in, in late 2015. Wait, I mean, to push the analogy, right, you, you have to figure that if, uh, if if the new Black Panther Party gets a bunch of guys with automatic rifles together and they take over a building and hold it hostage and say that their grievance is Tamir Rice and Eric Garner and all like that, that that is not going to be... I think that's not going to be something that is helpful to Black Lives Matter. There's going to be a backlash to that backlash rather than a bunch of people being like, you know what? These guys, like, they're making some good some good points here. I mean, I don't I, – obviously, I'm speculating. We don't, we don't know what will happen if that happens. But it is 
difficult for me to imagine ethnic or religious minority groups in the United right. States being able to gain a new level of public sympathy by engaging in these acts of violence. Whereas <laughs> you already see it in Oregon. You can see the articles on Vox.com, people doing articles like, you know, these militia guys seem crazy, but that minimum sentence is a little excessive. <laughs> or these militia guys seem crazy, but there re- really are a lot of problems with, with federal policy in, in Western lands. And um, I don't know. I, I, don't know, but I, the same I feel time, a little yeah. backlashy to the backlash. I yeah. think they should kick everyone off the federal But lands. at the same time, like, I don't, it seems like there's such a high risk and such low reward, you know, going in so aggressively after the, like, They've been denounced even by the people they're trying to support, like Ted Cruz, the Obama administration. Everyone says, you know, they shouldn't be occupying. You don't see my understanding. I mean, correct me if this is wrong, is they've called for people to come join them in Oregon and bring their guns. Like you don't see this like big uprising. Right. But it's like you don't need this big uprising. There's already been, I feel like, this like new discussion of like all their issues and their their underlying complaints. And I I I find that odd. I think that there's less of a double standard in terms of discussion of the complaints than we actually do know a little bit about what would happen if someone retaliated with violence for Tamir Rice because that's what that was the expressed motive for the shooting of two New York City cops. Right. Well, and also we saw we saw in Baltimore, terrible. right? Like right, people, exactly. people like burned down a CVS and like all CVSs deserve to be burned <laughs> down just on customer service basis. But there was a huge backlash. At the that. same time, though, if you if you think about people talking about the criminal justice system and in particular police treatment of people of color in summer of 2014 versus now. You do see movement in poll numbers, particularly among young white people. There is a growing sense that complaints with police are legitimate, which does seem to me to be the equivalent of, well, yes, these people are crazy, but let's actually look more at what their grievances are. I haven't seen a huge shift on actually Western lands policy is totally screwed up and the federal government should sell a bunch of land back to ranchers. I feel like that's a pretty strong ideological commitment that a lot of people haven't changed. But awareness of what is the actual problem that's that's led to this point is maybe not the worst takeaway from this. Yeah. All right. Well, you know, we, we've been we've been going on for for a while, and uh, maybe maybe Dar has defeated me, but I don't I don't really want to concede. <laughs> so we'll just say we're out of time. All right. I have to have to talk it's about time for other a white things. paper. Yeah. All white right. Paper. So today we are going to talk about one of my favorite sources of white papers, the National Bureau of Economic Research. Live every day like it's NBER day. We like to say on the weeds. I hope James Paterba listens to this podcast. Hopefully, I've, I've hopefully. met him a couple times, and you know we're we're big fans. We're huge. If, if, if NBER wants to sponsor our podcast, I think they'd reach the audience they're looking for. We would write you a jingle. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, there is an interesting paper they put out this week on the minimum wage. So there's obviously a lot of debate about minimum wage. Some cities are experimenting with $15 per hour minimum wage. And we're going to see probably some really interesting economic research over the next few years about what happens when you raise the minimum wage that much, when you go up that high. This paper, it's from Jeffrey Clemens at UCSD in San Diego. I would intro this by saying it's, you know, one of many minimum wage papers. And to be perfectly honest, there's a lot of complex economic math in here that I do not 100% understand. But we're just going to talk about his conclusions and kind of what he's finding there and then kind of how it fits into this larger body of minimum wage research. So what Clemens is looking at is the increase in the minimum wage in the mid-2000s, where you saw the federal minimum wage go up, but it was differential across different 
state. So you can kind of run an experiment and see what happens differently depending on how fast the minimum wage goes well, so up. So it's because many states have their own minimum wages mm-hmm. that are higher than the federal minimum. So when the federal minimum wage goes up modestly, as it did there, yes. the minimum wage rises in some states but not Right. Others. So the federal minimum wage, it went up from five fifteen an hour in 2007 to seven twenty five an hour in 2009. But like Matt says, you had some states that were already – Above that. So you saw different changes. Right. So that's like the instrument. So that's the instrument. It's trying to control also for some changes in the housing market. Anyways, big takeaway from this is that Clemens finds that the minimum wage increase, it reduced employment among young individuals, 16 to 30, who had less than a high school education by 5.6%. So basically the idea is this rise in the minimum wage was bad for low-educated Americans. And it's part of this kind of back and forth of research on the minimum wage of, you know, what does it mean for low-wage people? Are people losing jobs? Is it going to be this economic stimulus that's really good for workers? Or are people losing out? There's some, you know, I mentioned the Mariel Boatlift earlier, where there's been a lot of interesting research about this influx of Cuban immigrants into Florida. And, you know, did that hurt low-skilled workers there? And I think this is kind of part of a body of research that's going to grow as people start looking at $15 minimum wage and explain, what does this mean for low-wage workers? Is it an improvement or is there a lot of job loss? Like, what's the net economic effect of raising the minimum wage? Yeah. And, you know, it's worth giving context to this paper, which is that for a long time, there had just been a kind of, you know, you draw a supply and demand curve on a, on a piece of paper, and it says, well, if you raise the wage, fewer people will be worked. Uh, and then you had, back in 1992, what was at the time a groundbreaking empirical study that, that David Card did. And it was exploiting, I think, a state-level increase in the minimum wage in New Jersey, or maybe it was Pennsylvania. It was New Jersey. New Jersey. But either way, they, so they look at the Pennsylvania-New Jersey border, right? And so you can see like, well, okay, is there like suddenly all the Wendy's open up in Pennsylvania and there's none in New Jersey? And they find that no, that that wasn't the case. So liberals got really excited about that because minimum wage always polls well. It was great to see like economic evidence that this was an idea that really worked and and could be amazing. So because it's a hot button issue, you start seeing more and more and more and more and more papers on this. And you can see a guy named David Newmark has probably been the the leading researcher in a, a line of papers that show adverse impacts on employment. And a, a guy named Aaron Dubay has become the uh, leading guy with a, with a line of papers that show no impact um, or sometimes small positive impacts. And the, the research has gotten very sophisticated. So we started from this very sort of simple, naive study, one state raises, one state doesn't, let's see what happens, to these increasingly elaborate statistical methods. So like one key move in this new paper is that they try to say, well, look, obviously there were big employment declines in states that had unusually severely hit housing markets. We know that the building trades employs a lot of people who don't have formal educational credentials. So we should statistically control for that housing market impact. So then we can isolate the real minimum wage impact. So that's something they do. I I am not an econometrician to evaluate whether they did that control in an appropriate way. But just to say that part of what you have on both sides is like, increasingly uh, broke, possibly, ways to, to try to isolate the variable. And you can, you can look at it in all kinds of different ways, right? So, like, one thing you might want to say is, no, look, we're trying to see if increasing the minimum wage 
devastates employment opportunities for low-skilled people. If lots of low-skilled people have jobs in the building trade sector, you don't want to control that away, right? Like that's a real element of, of economic life. Then the counterargument to that like is obvious that it's like, well, look, we all know that the reason employment collapsed in Florida was that the housing market collapsed. It would be silly to attribute that to their non-raising of the minimum wage, blah, blah, blah. Um, it, it's difficult to know. There's like a difficult theoretical question about what do you want to do. And so you get, I think we can all sort of understand the workings of human psychology, whereby you go back, you think to yourself, well, do I think abortion should be legal or illegal? That's something I have like a strong conviction about. <laughs> then you say, well, which position on the minimum wage goes with my position on abortion? Say, so, okay, that's easy. And then it's like, okay, so whose empirical conclusions do I endorse, right? It's, it, that, that's a little crude. But, you know, it's just, it, it's, it's very easy to persuade yourself if you are disposed toward one side or the other of this to just be like, there's a fuckload of papers that support my view, uh, which is true because there's like a lot of papers on, on both sides. And in a sort of honest journalistic way, it's hard to know what to make of it. I think that there is kind of another intersection with policy that's a little bit less prone to which side of the debate do I want to pick papers from, though. And that's it seems like one of the other methodological innovations in this paper is not looking at just at what was employment among demographic groups who tend to be hurt by shocks in the economy or by wage increases? You know, what was the economic impact on teenagers, for instance, but actually looking at who are the people who are individuals who are working at the minimum wage and what happens to those particular people when it goes up? And the argument that's being given in the paper appears to be, well, the point of raising the minimum wage isn't to allow teenagers to make more money for their part-time jobs. It's to have people supporting families be able to support those families. That strikes me as a better policy rationale for increasing the minimum wage. And it seems to me that it helps to look through the economic literature. If you, if you accept that half of the papers say, well, yes, fewer people are going to be working, they're going to be making more money for the time they are working, looking at who those people are and is the – even if you're decreasing employment, is that doing more to help people support their families? Theoretically, you say that that's a success for a, a hike in the minimum wage, not necessarily that it doesn't hurt employment but that it hurt, helps poverty. Right. But, you know, even this is like you can you can play these games on both yeah. sides. So, like, there are some papers that find, OK, there is a small decrease in employment, but that decrease is concentrated among teenagers. So one argument you could make about that finding, if true, is that, like, look, this is fine, right? Like, we don't really need 17-year-olds working at McDonald's part-time. Maybe they should be doing their math homework. And we're raising the incomes of adults, right? So, like, that's all good. But I've read papers that have that empirical finding that cast it exactly the other way. And they then find that, well, it turns out that particularly for people who don't have a lot of educational credentials, having work experience is really important to your life cycle earnings, right? So if you can show up at the age of 28 and like, maybe you don't have a high school diploma, certainly you don't have a college degree, but you can say, look, I mean, I've been working, you know, I started working part-time when I was 16. I've been working full-time since I was 19. You are, by the time you get to a, a certain age, like quite employable. I mean, not in like specialized occupations that, you know, require you to have gone to law school. But like for general work, you seem like a solid guy. Whereas, I mean, there's there are papers that show, well, if you have no work history through your teen years, it gets like hard to get on the whole labor market track. So that teen thing is horrible, uh, which is 
I don't have like a strong view on, on which of these is is right. You can do the empirics and people can argue the empirical things different ways, but then people can also argue the intersection of the empirical findings with their broad theoretical concerns in different kind of ways. I, I mean, you don't want to be totally cynical about it. I, I, and I think it would be wrong to imagine that these are like college professors sitting behind their desk was like, here's an evil plan. <laughs> but, but it's just true that people's prior commitments sort of shape and channel right. the way that they This they all circles back to like the earth theme of the weeds of like, we've already decided what we think. And... We have our political tribes that we're sticking to, including those who research the minimum wage. But it's also true that, you know, if you come at this with convictions, but nuanced convictions, you can do nuanced policies. So Australia, for example, is a very high minimum wage, um, uh, much higher than than the United States. Uh, But they have an exception to it where you can employ teenagers um, at, at much lower wage rates. And so one obvious thing you might worry about there is like, well, okay, aren't certain kinds of employers going like to get rid of all their grown-ups and replace them with teenagers? And you do actually see that in Australia, that Australian fast food chains are much more dependent on teenagers. Uh, but the view in Australia is that that is good, that they want to create a high wage floor for adults to support their families, but they want to create a sort of cheap labor pool of teenagers so that people can gain labor market experience. I don't know if that's the right thing to do or not, but it, it reflects a view that they seem to have in Australian politics of like Mm -hmm. what they want out of the low-wage economy, which is basically work experience for young people and living wages for older people. And so the law is designed to create that. In America, I mean, you can look at the the way the minimum wage works, and it it doesn't appear to be particularly designed to – accomplish anything in specific terms, right? It's it's broad brush, but then it has this like huge loophole for people who get tips. So I, and I always do think it's worth mentioning, like one potential reason that the minimum wage doesn't cost many jobs in some papers is that there are a lot of loopholes in it. In my experience, the people who favor minimum wage increases tend to also be upset about the loopholes. But you may want to pay attention there to how it goes, right? I mean, so one possibility is that since tipped workers in most states can be paid very, very, very low wages, there's no reason for the minimum wage to sort of bind, right? If some people can't be employed at the new higher minimum wage, they wind up shifting into maybe into the tipped sector um, or, or other kinds of things. And so I would always be interested in more research if it were possible to actually track individuals and like see how they flow through these labor markets rather than tracking demographic groups. Like do actual people lose their jobs and possibly go get other jobs elsewhere, you know, or, or don't they? It also seems to me, and Sarah, I guess I haven't read as as much economics about other policies as you probably have, so I think this is more a question for you, but it seems like a lot of these papers take empirical data about a particular place at a particular time and then say, minimum wage, good or bad, when what they're really measuring is, was raising the minimum wage a good idea at this particular place in this particular time? Right, because like the moment you're looking at in this particular paper is like a very slack economy where you're looking at a place like you're looking at the recession. You're looking at a point when you know you already had a lot of different economic change going on. And I mean, this shows up all the time. And like I spend a lot of time looking at like the health economics research. And you know, recently, like the last deep dive I did was about how increases in premiums affect wages. Because, you know, this is the data you're working with. Like this is where 
economists are always going to be, you know, is looking for an interesting, good data set that describes the problem you're trying to study. The challenge with any data set, aside from our previous weeds discussions about how all survey data is horribly flawed and we're all totally screwed on that front, but even looking at non-survey data, they all measure like a particular moment in time. One of the best studies on the wage premium relationship looks at like Illinois teachers, just because Illinois teachers were especially generous with their data. And you end up, you know, when economists are doing this work, and I don't think this is in any nefarious way, like they're trying to make some contribution to the public policy world. They're trying to say, like, here's what this thing teaches us. But they're always limited to the fact they're like studying one narrow example that's a particular group of people at a particular point in time. And that's true of, you know, any of the minimum wage research. And that's kind of how you end up with this body of research like Matt describes it, where you end up with these really disparate findings depending on who you're looking at. And like you can probably manipulate that a bit to like kind of get the sort of findings that fit your economic and ideological views depending on like who you look at. And then like, you know, as Matt said, um, kind of how you frame those findings, you know, after getting them. Because there's also, you know, there's different ways you can think about recessions happening, right? So it's like, I could publish a paper and could be, say, like, well, you know, holding this cup of hot coffee in my hand while I uh, just drove the car off the road led to a lot of burns. So the coffee made my decision to drive off the road way worse. Another way of framing that would just be, well, one reason to not fling your car into a bumpy off-road situation is that there might be things in the car that you don't want to you don't want to spill and and i mean economists just genuinely have different views of how you should think about recessions and things like that right if you see it as just a kind of a force of nature that like well these things are like bound to happen then you might want to say well okay any policy intervention that makes recessions more severe you know, is like a really bad idea. Or you might think that, well, these recessions occur because of, of policy errors. And so you can have bad interaction effects, but that's all just really going to show that it's really damaging to the economy to, to sort of throw things off track. I, I do think you would see, I mean, if the temperature on the debate cooled down a little, I, I do think almost everyone would agree that the middle of a recession was not a really good time for the minimum wage to be going up. Because naturally, I mean, what it means to have a recession is that companies are sitting around seeing that the revenue isn't coming in, seeing that they need to get rid of some people. And so big policy moves that make it like, eh, maybe you better get rid of some people. You know, it's 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 not good to do it then, right? You want to do it at a time when people are hiring, when, when they're looking for new people. Of course, politics is hard, right? So this minimum wage increase... It passed when it passed because Democrats had a majority in Congress. They didn't know there was going to be a recession the following year. And then when the recession starts, well, you don't want to undo it because you don't know who's going to have a majority in Congress the next year. You know, in a sort of theoretical dictator could have easily said, you know what, let's just keep this on hold. And then in 2010 or 2011, been like, yeah, we're, we're putting it back in. But as it happens, by 2011, Republicans were running Congress and you wouldn't have been able to put it back in. So what you really, really want to know as a policymaker is what's the impact on the long term. But that's much, much harder to actually study, right? I mean, because to an extent, what happens to people's jobs in one particular year doesn't matter. People care about what happens to employment, what happens to poverty, what happens to economic growth, you know, over five years, over 10 years, over over the course of people's whole lives. But whole lives and, and whole decades are, are really complicated to, to study. And particularly, I, I've seen a lot of 
a lot of new sort of job market candidates coming out of economics have fresh new minimum wage papers because it's a it's a cool way to show off your statistical skills on a relevant policy issue. Um, but that doesn't mean just because your paper is on a relevant issue doesn't mean that it necessarily addresses the question that is most relevant to mm-hmm. people, right? It's like it's a little hard to get at something that would be actually like mind changing in that sense. Although, isn't there a problem in other fields, uh, in other research fields, where once an interesting finding has been made, instead of filling in the rest of the empirics around that interesting finding and figuring out whether it holds in different circumstances, people just move on to the next thing? Isn't it a good thing to have a more robust body of empirics? It's it's great that there's, like, so much research. I just don't know that it's clarified anything for anyone. (laughs) And I shouldn't say, I I don't want to overstate this. I do think that the minimum wage literature has changed some minds, but it's changed minds in a kind of peculiar way, which is that it used to be that minimum wage increases polled very well, but that I suspect that a lot of super knowledgeable about economics people who were liberal in general were skeptical about minimum wage increases. But now if you look at this a a company called IGM does a survey of economists, um, and it now shows that most of the academic economists they survey favor a minimum wage increase. I was reading a, a new book by, by Robert Gordon, an economist at Northwestern, and he sort of explicitly says this in the end. He's talking about different policy solutions, and he says, you know, one idea that's popular is raising the minimum wage. You know, I used to think that was actually a bad idea, but uh, now there's all these studies, so so I'm for it. So you see economists who are generally left of center in their overall political orientation now getting permission from the empirical literature to align their view on this topic with their other kinds of political commitments. I'm not sure that you see economists who are right of center on other issues being persuaded by this because they have their own set of papers, right? But it's like... so. I think it's it's troubling. Like, it's good as just, like, research and, like, the growth of human knowledge that we have so much studies on this. But in terms of its practical impact on the world, it just mostly seems to be that it lets everyone – you can go wherever you want on the, like, escalating ladder of informedness and still just, like, conform to, to the right thing. And I'll, I'll put myself in that boat. I want to get along with, with my friends and my Twitter followers. So I'm, I'm very enthusiastic about liberal minimum wage research. It seems great to me. But, like, that's what drives this stuff, right? It's not, it's not exactly that people are dishonest, but it's, like, it's nice to get along with, with people who you are likely to see. Boom. Boom. Yeah. An even better way to get along with people you see is to listen to The Weeds every week. And recommend them to listen to The Weeds. Recommend that they listen to it. discuss it. To, to review us on iTunes, to tell your friends to review us on iTunes, to tell people that they don't even need to listen as long as they download and review. Just subscribe. That's, that's all you want. Yeah. Um, so, no, it's uh, thanks to, to Dara for, uh, for filling in. Uh, thanks to, to Mike and, and AC Valdez, who helped us out with production this week. And we will, we will see you all next week. 